0: It was like death by a thousand cuts. It just on and on and on and on. And every time we thought we had turned a corner, there was another capital call. And we would turn that corner. And then there was another cash call and another cash call and another cash call. And that went on for a period of about two years.
1: Hello fellow risk takers and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. And I want to thank all the listeners from Singapore who are listening in for joining this mission today. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A.E. Stotts Academy. And I'm here with featured guest, Peter Goldstein. Peter, are you ready to join
0: the mission? I'm on board for the mission. Yes,
1: I am excited to talk to you and been looking forward to, to this discussion. So let me introduce you to the audience. Peter is a seasoned entrepreneur, capital markets expert, an investor with over 35 years of diverse international business experience throughout his career he's held pivotal roles including ceo chairman investment banker founder board member investor and advisor to public private and emerging growth companies he founded exchange listing llc dedicated to facilitating growth companies listing on esteemed exchanges like nasdaq and the new york stock exchange he also founded MS Capital, a specialized boutique fund investing in global small and micro cap IPO or pre IPO companies, growth companies. Why don't you take a minute, Peter, and tell us about the unique value that you are bringing to this wonderful world?
0: Thanks for the intro, Andrew. You know, the the first place is really aligning with entrepreneurs. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs like me when I was younger have the dream and the vision. To list your companies on a global stock exchange, such as NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange. And that's a very complex route. Mm. You know, you need to prepare 18 to 24 months prior and really build a foundation of taking your company through the process of transitioning from private to public. I've done it twice with my own companies. I never had a trusted advisor. I never had a guide, a quarterback, a Sherpa, whatever you may call it, to help me work through all those complexities. And therefore, I made, you know, countless mistakes and learned countless lessons along the way. So after a very unique career, last 25 years in the capital markets, about four years ago, I formed Exchange Listing, really to position ourselves alongside of the entrepreneur, but to help them navigate these complexities. So we work with investment bankers we work with securities attorneys we work directly with the exchanges and nasdaq new york stock exchange and take the companies through a process and preparing them educating them and then executing properly on their ipo with a focus on small to medium-sized companies and there's an entire marketplace there Andrew, that people don't realize is possible you don't have to be a unicorn so the big myth to debug to debunk And to really break apart is that there is an entire market and access to transformational capital that is available to earlier stage micro and small cap companies. Mm.
1: And just out of curiosity, when a company says, I want to list in the stock market and they've got a pathway to listing and they met most of the requirements, let's say, I suspect they're generally going to hire an investment banking firm that's going to help create their prospectus and help them go through that? Or or is that what you're doing? Or are you saying, I'm guiding you through the overall process and I'm going to help you to make sure that you got the alignment from the different participants that are naturally going to help you to get through all of the paperwork and stuff that you've got to get through to get there?
0: Correct. It's really the latter. And even before being able to engage an investment banker, you have to do a tremendous amount of work to attract the proper banker and that's different by the size of your company the amount of capital you need to raise the tier in which that banker sits and getting access to them they're very difficult to be able to get the attention of so we first properly prepare the company and go through financial modeling the deck with the audience being the bankers and then we'll interview and qualify a number of bankers and then in a perfect situation there's what they would call a bake-off where you've got bankers competing for the rights to be able to take a company public. And of course that investment banker, which I used to be one of, sits between the company then and the investors and their job is to bring that capital in to help support the initial public offering.
1: And what would you say is the hardest part about listing? Assuming, let's just assume that, I think one of the most important parts of listing is that you have a a strong story and a good growth opportunity for your business. I think, you know, there's other aspects to it, for instance, trying to bring, you know, as much liquidity to the market as you can, those types of things. But when it just comes to kind of the mundane stuff of, you know, steps it takes to get into the market, what would you say is kind of the the most important stuff?
0: It starts a lot with the foundation of your record keeping, your bookkeeping. You're going through a financial audit. Most private companies have never gone through the requirements of taking how they've organized their companies now by inviting outsiders in to examine every single aspect of your business and then take you through a compliant audit for two years prior to the listing, right? So that's by itself is an incredibly challenging task. And even there, there are are unique characteristics that the company can prepare and organize to facilitate a much smoother, an easier path to getting the audit done. But that's just one of, we take companies through 10 different steps of organizing them. And so audit is really the longest and most difficult, probably challenging item. From there on, it gets easier, but that's the longest timeline item as well, Andrew. So when we're looking at a company listing, we say, hey, let's work 24 months or 18 months backwards to where we are today. And then set out a roadmap, like any other journey you would take, you need a roadmap and then you need to be able to understand what are the challenges and then the stops along the way with those milestones to successfully reach, you know, your end goal and result.
1: I have a, a student of mine at university and he's got a fast growing company and he's so focused on listing. It's very fascinating. He's learned everything he can and he, you know, he decided he was gonna get the best software. So he's got SAP. Which is very expensive, but you know, he decided he's gonna make sure that he's got his accounting right. He hired the accountants, the big four accounting firms and audit firms to make sure that he's already getting the accounting and the auditing in place. He's been working on his board of directors and thinking about the governance aspect of what he's trying to do. I'm really impressed by him, you know, and I'm just curious, like when somebody really is like preparing ahead of time, are there any snafus or other things that you think could happen, you know, as you get deeper into the process, even though
0: you've kind of done everything right? We don't have enough time to talk about all the snafus that come about. You know, one of the things, and this is one of the things I love about working without what I do in, in advising and taking these companies through this journey, there are so many variables that can come up along the way. There's business dynamics, there's accounting, there are market dynamics, You know there are t- regulatory components, there's governance components. And any one of these, if you make a misstep, are often interrelated and could cause significant upset to the entire process. One of the most classic mistakes I see is that companies don't understand building their cap structure, their capitalization, the number of shares they're offering at what price and what structure can trip them up as they go through the process and then you have to undo or redo or have different structures inside of the investment and often the valuation that investors have come in prior so there are a number a myriad of of different scenarios that could go wrong and part of this is is all then examining and doing an assessment of where you are and making sure that you execute critically as you would go forward through those steps
1: The other thing that's interesting is when you look at the data of new listings or net new listings, let's say new listings minus delistings, and you look at the growth in markets, it's all in Asia basically over the last 10 or 15 years where, you know, think about China. China went from almost nothing to having 3,500 listed companies. And I'm telling you the interesting thing about those companies is that 3,300 of them are large and liquid. So if you do as I've done in some of my research where I've I've looked at markets and I've stratified markets across the world based upon a certain level of liquidity to ask, you know, how large and liquid are the stocks in the market? India's just the opposite. A huge number of stocks but, a very small number that are large and liquid, but China is just the opposite. is probably the largest and liquid, most liquid market in the world. But then you look at the u s and like, what's happening to capitalism? How can it be that we've had so many more d listings than iPOs? And you know, I know that there's arguments about after the two thousand you know bubble, We then had Sarbanes-Oxley come in. We've had Dodd-Frank come in maybe as as more regulation and, and other regulations that are added in. And now what I can see happening in Asia, and I'm sure it's happening in the US, is that the bureaucrats and the technocrats are marching in on listed companies with all kinds of regulations that they want to implement related to ESG, sustainability, carbon, this, this, that, and this and that. Like, is it getting less attractive for a mid size or small size business to even have the ambition of listing on the market? Is it really only the space for the biggest companies that can afford all of that compliance?
0: Yeah, it's a trade-off, Andrew. And, and whether you're going for venture capital, or you're going for private equity, there are costs to each one of these. The costs, I'm an advocate of going public, obviously, and going public early and growing your business through access to liquidity and to capital that come from the public markets. So there's a cost to everything, there's a trade-off. I would agree with you that, you know, essentially right now, you know, in in this current year, one of the worst IPO markets we've seen. There is a pent-up demand, though, of capital seeking to enter the markets. So I think as, as we get through all of these current geopolitical and other factors that are really impacting the markets around the world, especially in the United States, that things will loosen up in the way of access to capital and regulatory components that are currently restricting a fair number of companies. Mm-hmm. And where I'm looking is, we work with international companies as well. I just listed two companies out of the Asia Pacific this year. And so there is a still a prestige to listing on the NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange. Yeah. And there are, there's a cost to that that comes along with it. So we have the ability to list companies from all over the world, coming to access both capital and liquidity through the institutional investors that are trading stocks on those two premier senior exchanges.
1: And for for companies that are international, let's think about Asia, where I am, Thailand, as an example, are they always going to have a local listing and then do another listing in the U.S. market or are they going to go and say, oh, I just want to list in the U.S. And what are the downfalls, you know, with the different ways of doing it?
0: it's interesting so they do not have to list on a local exchange they can come directly to the united states as a foreign filer and those are actually less restrictions and regulatory requirements than you would if you were a u.s based and u.s domiciled entity so it's advantageous for fire and filers to come and they do not have to do a primary listing in their home jurisdiction they're able to come directly And that I think is one of the unique opportunities that we have in working with foreign companies, where especially if they wanna build their brand and build their presence in the United States, Mm -hmm. I think going public is one of the greatest marketing tools and companies don't necessarily look at this. They of course look at the access to capital, they look at the liquidity and having stock as a currency. But if you think about a foreign company who either has or wants to build their US presence, What better way to be able to market and advertise that you've gone through all the regulatory scrutiny, you know, all of the compliance, everything that was required, including the diligence from investors, to now be able to attract, you know, shareholders, strategic partners, and even potentially M&A opportunities. And one of the things,
1: there was a a beverage company in Thailand, an alcohol company that there was a big protest by the owner's you know, opponents. And basically, they managed to prevent them from listing in Thailand many years ago. So the beverage company went and listed in Singapore. And so now you have this Thai entity that's listed in the Singapore market. And I would argue that it, it got lost in a, in a no man's land. The local analysts didn't really cover it because they weren't really covering the Singapore market. And the Singapore analysts saw it as something kind of different you know, and so they didn't, it was really hard to get the awareness. I'm just wondering for, let's say a midsize, you know, company that's coming in. I guess when you bring a mid-size company into the U.S. market, you probably ends up being a small cap company. But for that right. type of situation, do they fall into kind of a no man's land and it makes more sense to have a local listing or is that not such a big problem?
0: No, it is. It is a challenge. And I would say, you know, one of the things, that i focus on with our companies and our relationships is that you can get your company through the process like we were talking Mm -hmm. but nobody knows about you so then you have to invest in creating awareness and what's changed in the last you know call it five to ten years is that now retail investors can access these opportunities directly so we separate the buyers you have retail individual investors who can utilize technology and invest from around the world, mm. as well as you know, institutional investors. So we work with those companies to create an awareness campaign. Just like you were marketing your product anywhere else, you now have a second opportunity to market your stock, but you're not marketing it as a product or a service to sell, you're marketing it as a product for, or an entity for investors to participate in. And that takes time, and it costs, It costs obviously, you know, significant investment before the institutions have a chance to really understand what your stock is, what your company is, and that there's enough volume and liquidity for some of that machine trading and some of the other benefits that you get from you know, the algorithms that kick in and, and the institutional support that comes. And then, of course, there's getting research and there's getting analyst coverage these are our longer term pathways, mm. you know, the stock doesn't trade itself. And it requires a significant investment. And I think that would be true, Andrew, whether you're doing local market, or you're doing something overseas, you really have to look at this like you're in a second business. And it's so you have your operating company, and then you have the company of being public. And we treat it that way.
1: And. You mentioned about analyst coverage. How important is analyst coverage these days compared to, I don't know, five, 10, 15 years
0: ago? I think it's equally, if not, you know, maybe more important now to get the credibility of having an analyst who understands your specific business inside of a sector with expertise and knowledge of where do you stand along with comparable companies Mm -hmm. and those benchmarks and those KPIs that are used to be able to measure you, you know, against competitive companies. And it's critical because otherwise, again, how do you have a basis of comparison to you know, the value today versus the future opportunities and the growth? And what are we all after? We're after a return on our investment, right? Mm-hmm. So it's an outside third party looking to give their input based upon their area of expertise and study.
1: I'm just curious, in Thailand, the regulators as well as the stock exchange and others complain that we're losing analysts. We just don't have as many analysts as we had in the past. Some people think that the job of an analyst is really kind of dead. People say, well, uh, people don't read long reports anymore. You know, even institutional clients don't read it. The attention span's gotten, you know, shorter. And I'm just curious, like, just what is your perspective on what's changed in the world of financial analysts in the
0: U.S.? I think it's similar. There there is a shrinking base. And then, of course, there is a regulatory. There's a a wall built, the Chinese wall, so to speak, between the banking side and the research side and just like you're saying the reports have gotten shorter they're much more streamlined you know they're more more focused on being able to put that out to their existing you know relationships as opposed to putting it out you know over the wire because like you said people don't have the bandwidth they don't read they're not particularly interested in thick you know extensive reports so the summary and the cohesiveness of a good analyst who has a following is definitely a critical component mm,
1: well I got so many different questions, but I, I want to get onto your, you know, your story. And before we do though, where's the best place for people to follow you, to learn more about what you're doing, you know, so that if they're thinking about listing themselves or anything like that, they can learn
0: more. The best place is LinkedIn, Andrew. I'm very active in LinkedIn. I put a lot of information out about the industry, about the things that we're discussing, about the IPO markets, about investors. As well as different, you know, perspectives that I have, you know, about the world and leadership and business. So, you know, please, you know, find me on LinkedIn. And for those that are interested in the book, just send me a DM and we'll figure out how to get it to you. Great. And I'll have a
1: link to that in the show notes so that anybody can go there and learn more. Well, now it's time <laughs> to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstance leading up to it and then
0: tell us your story. You know, this was a challenge, Andrew, cause I've had many. So I had to think about what would be the top of the worst and then why. And when I was thinking through it, I was thinking about all the different things that led up to the interplay of different components that had me make this investment decision. And I was living in California at the time. And at that point I was when cannabis was getting legalized for recreational purposes so the so-called green rush and when i was looking at the interplay i was thinking about okay well what were the factors that had me want to invest in a licensed facility that was going to manufacture and distribute recreational and medical cannabis products in the largest state in the united states of america with the most history in the cannabis sector or of any other state in the union. And so those components were: there was a crowd, you know, there was a trend, it was jumping on the trend. There was an emotional component of greed, like, you know, wow, I could really make a significant, you know, exponential return on my investment. And I did not think about the risk component, nor did I think about getting expert advice that would guide me through understanding where this would be. So, when the day was done, I and four of others put a significant amount of money into opening up this facility in in Long Beach, California, positioned in Los Angeles County, you know, the largest county where cannabis was in great demand prior to a limited number of licenses being put together by, you know, the state in order to legally and we went through all of the necessities to get the license to comply to build the facility, not realizing that all along the way, the complexities and challenges that would come, ending up resulting in the worst investment I've ever made. And can you remember the
1: day when you said, all right, this is over?
0: Unfortunately, as I would think you might get in other stories, it was a slow <laughs> grind. <laughs> a slow <laughs> and slide. I think the final, yes, correct. And I think the final day, was when all of us sat together and said, we're just not gonna put any more money into this. But that was a, it was like death by a thousand cuts. It just on and on and on and on. And every time we thought we had turned the corner, there was another capital call. And we would turn that corner and then there was another cash call and another cash call and another cash call. And that went on for a period of about two years.
1: Mm. It's such an applicable thing here because in Thailand, we have a green rush for sure. And Thailand is really liberalized and there is a shop on every corner There's everybody's growing and all of that. So I think I want to just address that group of people, including friends of mine and clients of mine. Like, what would you say? Was it regulatory? Was it market? Was it marketing? Was it operational? What was the kind of the core thing that was most difficult for you guys?
0: The biggest expense was compliance with the regulatory, which was, we were early, we were one of the first movers. Mm. And so, as we were learning, so were the regulators. And every time they learned something new or something changed, well, we had to react to that. But that really was, I would say, part one. Part two is that there was not yet a proven market. There was a gray market, and there was a, certainly a black market, but there wasn't a compliant market where it was understood what the true margins would be, what the true cost would be. Of course, we knew that there was great demand, but when you tacked on all of the cost of producing, regulatory, taxes, and then distribution, margins were slim to none.
1: Mm. And that's because. Because it's a green rush, you also have someone on every corner coming up and they're willing to cut the price down? Or was it just because the costs were just rising faster than you could keep up with?
0: A combination. It was interesting, Andrew. So when we got our license, there were a limited number of licenses. And we thought that the regulators were going to hold true to that. Well, then they opened up more licenses mm. and more licenses and more licenses. So the value of what was looked at as very significant became a commodity, mm. as did the product. And in California, I don't know about, you know, in, in other markets around the world, but I I got my so-called dummy tax, you know, from the, the California component of working in the industry was the black market thrived because you could buy the same product cheaper without on all the, the black market costs. correct and the taxation right so you know it really was a learning experience that occurred even when we got through all of the regulatory components that what ended up happening really was that the market and the margins were so thin and the demand was was always been there but people are are gonna look at if I can buy the same quality product at a lower price they're not concerned about Yeah, compliance. It
1: reminds me of a conversation I have with my first boss many years ago. I started working for him in 1993 in the stock market. He's a very brilliant guy, John Trimpton. And if you recall the movie, The Graduate, where Dustin Hoffman, I believe, is told, you know, the future is plastics, Mm -hmm. right? And that movie came out right when my father was working for DuPont in plastics and he built his whole career in plastics. So that was kind of a meaningful statement and it was true, right? Plastics were the future. And I asked John a couple of years ago, what are you investing in these days? And he said, the future is compliance, the compliance state, anything compliance I'm investing in it. And that's when you realize that, you know, the, the train of compliance just never stops and it just keeps coming. And they and why are they doing it? They want tax money out of it. So taxes are gonna come out of it and all of that. So that's something that I think is just beginning to happen in Thailand where we've had kind of a flood and a rush, but now this, the government's trying to figure out, okay, how do we really manage this? And I think that's where serious risks come into play. How would you summarize what you learned
0: from this? Well, for one, Check your emotions at the door. Mm. So ego and greed don't have interplay into making a sound investment. And the second is be cautious before you jump on a trend, right? Don't follow the crowd blindly to think that just because everyone's going in that direction, it actually to me is quite the opposite of be careful and don't jump on the trends. The other thing is really, I would say two parts. Understand your risk. Really, truly try to analyze your risk. And that I think is the last one, which is get expert help. Mm. And if you don't understand yourself, there are plenty of experts that you can find and seek out that would either want to help or you can engage with them and hire them professionally to help so that you really do understand with expert advice and risk management how to make sound investment.
1: Yeah. That's great learning. And I think it's valuable for everybody. What I would add to it from my, like my angle on this is a little bit more crude. And that is ladies and gentlemen, this is directed for all the entrepreneurs out there starting their business. And that is, I'm sorry, but you are just a commodity. And As you go into business, you have all your dreams about how you're unique and it's gonna be this and it's gonna be that. But the chances are you and your business are gonna just be a commodity. And the only way to get out of that is through tremendous thinking about strategy, about positioning, about how you're gonna enter this business, what's gonna be different about you and the discipline to follow that strategy. If you don't have a good idea about that, you have a lot of excitement about getting into an industry that's booming, but very quickly, you're going to end up being a commodity and commodities oftentimes just get crushed. That's what I would say I took away. Anything you would add to that?
0: I think along those lines, Andrew, is don't believe your own thought about how amazing or wonderful your product, service, technology, or X, Y, Z is. You know, pressure test that, stress test that. Mm. Make sure that what you are really believing is received by the market to be true. So go
1: out on a corner and start selling some weed and see how it goes. (laughs) In Long Beach. No, I graduated from Long Beach State. So I was living in Signal Hill and I was living at Cherry and Sixth Street, I think it was, and have fond memories of Long Beach. But that was way before there was any weed there, except for the, the black market weed. So based upon what you've learned from this story and what you continue to learn. I want you to think about all those people who are getting into the weed space. What one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate?
0: Don't believe the hype. Yes. Public
1: enemy. Was that public enemy that said that?
0: (laughs) Good one. Very good. Exactly.
1: One of the classic bands, hip hop, from the days, but yes, don't believe the hype. All right, what's a resource of yours or any other resource that you'd like to recommend for the audience?
0: Well, for me, I just published my first debut book. So, for any of the entrepreneurs listening that would ever consider wanting to understand the IPO process, you know, it's the entrepreneur's IPO and it's designed as a roadmap from insiders. So I have not just myself, but I. there's 12 chapters in the book. In each book, we have two industry professionals, those from very notable NASDAQ, New York Stock Exchange, London Stock Exchange, that are all giving practical advice to fill a knowledge gap for entrepreneurs that would consider taking their companies public.
1: Yeah, and this just came out. It shows on Amazon as November 21st, 2023.
0: It's a new baby. Hot yeah. off
1: the press, ladies and gentlemen. In fact, I'm just looking at it at Amazon right now and I'm gonna add it to my cart and I'm gonna get that and read it. I'll have a link in the show notes, ladies and gentlemen, so you can get that resource and think about you know the pathway. I'm sure it's valuable not only for people that say I wanna do IPO, but hey, if you wanna sell a stake in your company or you wanna sell your company to another company, it's probably almost the same pathway so valuable stuff i'm looking forward to reading it all right last question what is your number one goal for the next 12 months
0: i'm building a global community of entrepreneurs that want to learn and understand investing into micro and small cap companies so we're launching in the next 12 months you know a informational site Mm -hmm. to provide our global community with more knowledge so that they can understand and participate in the upside of investing in companies at an earlier stage in their life cycle.
1: Exciting. And listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. As we conclude, Peter, I wanna thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of ASTOTS Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment, Do you have any parting words for the audience?
0: It's been a pleasure. Good luck, everyone. Stay smart and stay safe.
1: All right. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well, Fellow risk takers, let's celebrate that today we added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott saying, I'll see you on the upside.